0: So this past week, I read a very sobering article um, written for church leaders. The article was just posted on Tuesday, July 3rd of this week. It's entitled, That Your Church Needs More Than a New Coffee Bar. I really wasn't looking for articles on coffee bars, but I... Wondered what they would say, because I see all kinds of opinions about nearly everything in the church when I read leadership stuff. But I want to read you some portions of this uh, article, so I hope you'll bear with me. And here's how it starts. This article is written by Kimberly Lira. And she says, More and more on my social media feeds... I've been seeing a lot of churches boast of the cool, trendy, new initiatives they have begun. I've seen pictures of coffee bars that resemble Starbucks. I've seen lighting that resembles one seen on Broadway. I have read catchy sermon titles that have seen how people brought the movies into their sermons. And maybe you have too. And then she writes this. My husband passed away February 14th, 2017, after a two-year battle with cancer. To say he battled cancer is an understatement, she writes. He was hospitalized two weeks out of every month during the first year. He was hospitalized a total of 18 times. He was rushed to the emergency room eight times. He spent hundreds of days separated from his two children. They were elementary age. And eventually, the chemo designed to get rid of the cancer caused him to be paralyzed. And for the last four months of his life, he was paralyzed and confined to bed. She continues. My husband endured cycle after cycle of chemo. He was separated from his children many nights. He was hooked up to chemo 24 hours at a time. He listened to the doctors tell him how, tell him bad news after bad news. He was left paralyzed and uh, un- unable to get out of bed. He never said how much he appreciated the coffee bar at church. Never once did he say he loved the lighting in the sanctuary. He never told me how cool it was if they put a couch on the platform. He didn't boast of the graphics and the props on the platform. He he talked about Jesus. He quoted scriptures. He reminded me of sermons we had heard. And in the middle of the night, he sang songs of praise and worship to God. He spent his time praying because nothing the church does to strategize, to bring members, help you in the time of storm. It's only Jesus. So she goes on and tells how hard it was to tell her two kids that her dad had reached the point where he wouldn't make it more than 24 hours. She tells that he died on Valentine's Day, 2017, and how he slipped into heaven She goes on to tell how hard it's been to go back to work full-time and to raise her two kids by herself. She can no longer send texts to her husband. She can't talk to him anymore. She can't tell him about her day or frustrations. And she can't hold his hand or give him a hug. He is no longer there for that kiss. When she goes to church... She doesn't wonder if there'll be cool music and trendy people. She doesn't care if the pastor relates his message to the latest Hollywood film. She says, I'm thinking about how much I need Jesus. And she writes that she's not against trend setting churches and up to date technology and Starbucks like coffee bars. But she wants us, she wants to remind us all that what we really need is Jesus. And finally, she writes this. However, in everything that is done, we need to make sure that Jesus is at the center. It's also a reminder that there are hurting people sitting in your congregation. There are people whose marriages are crumbling. (laughs) People whose finances are deteriorating. People whose children are rebelling. (laughs) She says, people like me. They're not impressed with stage lighting. They could care less about the coffee flavor. They don't need to be pumped or hyped. They're desperate. Desperate for Jesus. And if you know me, I'm not against trendy churches or cool coffee bars. I hope one day the bridge will be able to have its own facilities and Have the latest technology and excellence that honors God, and even a cool coffee bar. But I'm reminded today that what we need, what I need, is Jesus. I'm reminded how much people need Jesus, how people are desperate for Jesus. Our passage today has two people who know they're desperate. For Jesus. And so we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 8. And so I hope you'll look there with me. And uh, I'll start reading in uh, chapter 8 verse 40. And uh, the writer picks up Luke. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house Because his only daughter was a girl of about 12, and she was dying. So that's situation number one. We have an encounter with two desperate people. Situation one, Jesus meets Jairus. And uh, we see in verse 40, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. This is interesting because you remember where Jesus had been uh, the last time we were in Luke chapter 8. He'd been in the garrisons on the eastern side of the lake. And they had told him to leave. Remember that? After he had uh, delivered the demonized man. And they said, oh, just leave. This is scary. We don't need you here. And so the, he comes back. and Let's see the, I think we have a map here. So it's hard to tell that this is the land of Israel. But if you, this is the northern part of Israel, and here's the Sea of Galilee in the center. And last week we had been at Gergesa, which is the Gerasenes. And then Jesus is going back to Capernaum. And you remember, this has kind of been a home base for him. He's been there a lot. He called some disciples to him to follow him there. And he's done many miracles already. So he returns, and they know him, and they welcome him. Verse 41, then a man named Jairus... He's a synagogue ruler. Um, a synagogue would be a place of Jewish worship where they prayed and where they read scripture and where they explained the text. Now, there was only one temple in all of Israel, and the temple was in Jerusalem, and it was the only place where there was sacrifice. Synagogues were all over the nation, and they were a place of worship. And so he is a synagogue leader, Um, like an elder, and he's responsible for the worship. He's responsible to see that worship takes place in a God-honoring and orderly way. And he came and fell at the feet of Jesus, pleading with him to come to his house. This is really interesting because he's one of those Jewish leaders, and there's a whole lot of Jewish leaders that are antagonistic toward Jesus and skeptical and sarcastic about Jesus. But this guy, who knows the Scriptures really well, He's likely been in the crowds from time to time learning about Jesus, hearing Jesus teach, and sometimes seeing Jesus do miracles. And so he's desperate. And he comes to Jesus because of his daughter. She is dying. She's an only daughter, too. Not only the only daughter, but the only child. We know that from the word in the original language for only. And so... This has been the joy of his life, and it is sli- slipping away. This is situation one. Now we go to situation two in verse 42. Um, As Jesus was on his ways, the crowds almost crushed him. Remember, Jesus is really popular in, in Capernaum. They surround him. You know, uh, crowds or mobs, they they start pushing, and they start bumping, and, and they start moving. And they're all around Jesus. And verse 43, we learn uh, about a woman. She is desperate. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. This uh, woman we know, this is a menstrual flow uh, Issue. It's like having a period for 12 years. Um, some of you ladies can appreciate the difficulty. This is a chronic uh, sufferer for uh, 12 years with this issue. Now Mark uh, 5.26 gives us a little more information that Luke doesn't mention. It says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had it spent all she had, Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Um, She she spent a lot of money. She spent a lot of energy. It's been draining of her resources, draining of her energy. And what about her social life? Uh, Leviticus uh, 15 tells us that somebody with this uh, health issue would be considered ceremonially unclean. That meant that they couldn't worship worship with the worshiping community now for 12 years it meant that if someone touched her they would become unclean so why would anybody want to touch her she is isolated she is a lonely woman and she's hurting emotionally and physically it's really off the charts verse 44 we see her strategy she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak now the cloak was his outer garment it was like they used to call it for us it would be a coat but it was just a wrap that he carried around his shoulder and at the bottom of that cloak were tassels and she just wanted to touch one and immediately her bleeding stopped she touched one and immediately her life changed her Physical issues were healed immediately. I don't know how she knew. I don't know what she felt or what she experienced. But the scripture tells us that it was immediate. And she knows it. So two situations. Jesus has compassion for both. There is a little girl who is dying, and she's 12 years old. There is a woman who has been suffering for 12 years. Why 12 years on both? I don't know. But the joy of one man's life for 12 years has become very dark, and he's desperate. And this woman, because of her suffering for 12 years, is greatly desperate. Verses 45 through 48, we see faith displayed. And Jesus has a question, verse 45. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Uh, uh, First, it sort of sounds like he's bothered. Who would touch me? But Jesus has a very good purpose for his question. I don't think it's anything like he doesn't know who touched him. But he's going to stop and he's going to make a point out of this. When they all denied it, you know, to the question, who touched me? Peter, like the big brother, very practical, wants to help Jesus understand the practicality of this situation. Master, the people are crowding around and oppressing against you. Duh. And uh, Peter just wants to remind Jesus, you know, He's often talking about things we don't understand. He's talking about the kingdom of God and stuff like that. But those are just people. Ever since we've been here, Jesus, everybody's been bumped into. 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power had gone out for me. Jesus knew. I think he knew exactly what had happened, the whole thing. But he is bringing attention to this situation. And in fact, this is going to be extremely embarrassing for this woman. She has come up behind Jesus. She's very bold. She's going to get close to Jesus, but she doesn't want to talk to him. She doesn't want anybody to say anything. She doesn't want to be noticed. She just believes that if I touch Jesus' garment, I could be healed. And she's found out. And she's exposed, verses 47 and 48. Faith exposed. Exposed. Now, let's just stop a second. What about Jairus? What about his daughter? She's dying. And Jesus is going to stop now and talk to this woman in the midst of the crowd. And Jairus is in an urgent situation. It's a matter of life and death. Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now, this woman is full of shame and fear and embarrassment about her situation. You know, there are some people who would believe she was cursed, and people won't go near her. I remember there was a girl in, in school, like in kindergarten or first grade, and somebody started a rumor that she had cooties. None of us knew what cooties were, but everybody understood don't touch her. And that had a big impact on those early years of grade school. But this woman, for 12 years in an adult community, has been treated as an outcast, an outsider. And she is totally embarrassed by Jesus. And he wants to put her on the spot in front of everybody and to talk to her. So she sees and she came and she fell at his feet and she's trembling. She's in great fear. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him. She didn't want to talk about her issue of bleeding. She didn't want to talk about her health or that she was unclean in the eyes of the community, in the eyes of the Old Testament. But she also said that she had been instantly healed. Now, who's going to believe her? Who's going to believe her? How long would it take? Will Jesus scold her? She doesn't know. Will she be an outcast the rest of her life because she did this? She doesn't know. Why did Jesus embarrass her? Verse 38, then he said, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is the only female in all the Bible that Jesus ever calls daughter. And hey, they could have been close to the same age. Why did Jesus call her out? In this one quick, short exposure jesus has told the whole world she is changed she is healed she is clean she belongs to the worshiping community she is worthy of your love in just one simple act and it totally embarrasses her and then he says go in peace oh that's nice jesus Go in peace. But peace is more than absence of conflict. This is a word for shalom. It's may God bless you in your health and in your finances and in your life and your family. May God bless you. It's a a blessing for spiritual and and physical uh, prosperity. The concept of blessing is in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, and just kind of reminds you this is the kind of blessing that he gave her. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May you have God's grace abundantly. That's what Jesus is saying. May you have his favor on your life. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Shalom. But what about Jairus? Don't forget Jairus. His daughter is dying. He is desperate. His situation is urgent. Jesus, why did you take so long with this woman? Verses 49 through 56, we see Jesus' power revealed, but we have to start with the bad news. This would be devastating news. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't get in the way. we got other stuff to do. She's gone. She's dead. It's too late, Jairus. You failed, or Jesus failed you. It's too bad. What do you think was going through Jairus' mind? Jesus, why did you do this? You, you, couldn't you have come earlier? You, you, I think you could have saved her if you'd only responded quicker. Jesus, didn't you know that this might happen when you stopped? But Jesus gives a challenge and a promise in verse 15. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Just believe. I don't know. How would you have responded to, to Jesus? I mean, she's dead. You have hope? Yes? No? Yes? Maybe? I hope. She's dead. Would you think Jesus had failed you that he let you down? So Jesus recognizes a predicament as a parent of an only child. And he asks Jesus to hang on, stay the course, trust Jesus, trust him. Just keep believing. And then we encounter this hopeless situation back at the house in verses 51 through 53. It is hopeless. At least that's the experience. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter and John and the child's father and mother. So Jesus comes to the house. It's a death call. Death calls are never fun, especially when it's a child. Already people have gathered from the community. They're at the house. There's been a death. It's a terrible tragedy. So Jesus sets out some boundaries. Everybody clear out. Parents only. And then Peter, John, and James, I want you to go in with me. And we see that this was a pattern that Jesus had. He would often take these three, who he had apparently set apart for further training leader of leaders there were 12 disciples that Jesus trained and he, I, he spent more time at times with three and they would provide leadership to the others in the days ahead verse 52 meanwhile all the people were wailing and mourning for her so this would have been a t- typical home scene after a death there would be people uh, broken family members, neighbors rallying around this family. And there there was also a group that was normal for this time, professional mourners. They got paid to wail or to mourn out loud. And it's sort of like, there was kind of an unwritten belief that the louder you wail, the greater you showed how much you cared. And... This is a little bothersome for Jesus. Uh, He says, stop wailing. She is not dead, but asleep. So Jesus uh, takes control of this uh, chaotic situation. She's not dead, but asleep. Well, what did he mean? Was she dead or was she not dead? Was she asleep and just needed to be resuscitated? Sleep is a term, and it's not really clear exactly what Jesus intended, but sleep is a term we see in the New Testament for believers at death because they will be awakened at the resurrection. And Jesus is just telling them to relax a little bit. Verse 53, they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. They've seen death before. Some of them are professionals, you know. They know she's dead, and they laughed at Jesus. This is kind of funny because, you know, death is not something you just start telling jokes at or laugh at out loud, even if you think something's funny. But this group just gets really vocal about what Jesus says because you can tell their heart really isn't in the morning. It isn't that they really feel sad. And they don't say this out of anger, they laughed at him. You can understand somebody speaking out of anger, but they laughed. And then in verses 54 through 56, we see his compassion and power. He took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. If you touch a corpse, the corpse is considered unclean, and you immediately become unclean when you touch a corpse. Never bothered Jesus. and In fact, when Jesus touched something, he made it clean. That even happened clear back with it demonized man, something unclean. Jesus did not become defiled in any way, but he made it clean. And this is not the first time that he will raise somebody from the dead. He took her by the hand. He said, my child, get up. He gives her instructions. She hears and she responds. Her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. Her spirit returned. That that really clarifies that it, she really was dead. It was a real experience because this is about physical death is about when the spirit or the soul separates from the body. For a believer, the spirit uh, be, uh, or the soul become immediately present with Jesus today. And the, and the body remains and it will decay. That's Burial. But this spirit returned. Her life came right back. It returned. And uh, she just wasn't resuscitated. She was brought from death to life. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Jesus is really practical here to the parents. It's like, what are we going to do? No, That's so exciting. She's back to life. You know what? She's really hungry. She's been sick a long time. Let's just give her something to eat. Sort of like next steps. What do you do? And everything's whoa, you know? And he just simply gives instructions. Verse 56, her parents were astonished. That's exactly what should happen at the presence of a miracle of God. That was the whole purpose. Was to astonish people, to amaze people, to draw people's attention to the true and living God. That's what this was all about. Many miracles are performed in the Bible jesus performed the most and just remember miracles authenticate the message and the messenger jesus's message was good news he came to proclaim the good news the messenger is the messiah this is the most important messenger of israel of all time the most important messenger of god of all time with the most important message of all time And so Jesus' ministry is accompanied by many miracles focused in the nation Israel where they have been taught to watch for these things. And they would understand. That's why Jairus was pointed to Jesus because of what Jesus had said and what he had done. They were astonished. And then he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, that's really a big contrast from last week. If you remember uh, what he told the man who had been demonized, he says, "Go, go home, tell what God has done for you. Go home, tell, speak for me. Go home and be a witness. Remember I asked you last week if you would write your story and then share it with one person this week? I would ask you to raise your hand, but I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to embarrass you, but that's what he asked the person. And this was in a Gentile area, remember, uh, the demonized man. And um, they they didn't really value the Old Testament scriptures much there. There wasn't much of a focus. And he gives kind of a different message. But he tells the parents, okay, just, you know, the idea here is, Just enjoy, just embrace this moment. But don't go around shouting from the rooftops what's happened here. Why is that? It's not perfectly clear, but Jesus had this tremendous sense of timing on his plan on how he wanted to be revealed. And this whole thing is going to move until the last week of Jesus' life where he goes into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and he will be hailed as king that's that's the that's messiah he will be identified on that day publicly and then he'll be crucified for it jesus is wanting this message to get out slowly so he can continue to proclaim the good news to help people understand what all of this is going to be about and so he's in the within the nation israel he has uh, carefully processed this and, and uh, is careful about how to release information. Now, after his death, this is, this is stuff that will go everywhere and it should be told everywhere. But Jesus, in this current period, before he's revealed publicly, he wants some of those people to wait. So what are some lessons? What are some desper- uh, takeaways From the story of these two desperate people. First of all, number one, Jesus still responds to faith even when it's not perfect. And I hope this encourages us. Jesus still responds to faith even when it's not perfect. Uh, The woman who came up behind Jesus and just wanted to touch him and hope she would be healed, she had faith in Jesus. Jesus knew her heart. But I can't say she had A lot of information about Jesus and how he works. I don't know how I would have done it if I'd have been in her place either, but she didn't know a lot, but Jesus knew her heart, and Jesus responded to her faith. Now, um, I hope that encourages you. You do not have to be the smartest person in the world to ask God to answer your prayers. You don't have to know everything in the Bible or know as much as some other person. But you do need to have your own faith, and you need to trust. Now, I've seen, I've seen and I've read and I've heard stories of how God has done some miraculous things or amazing things, maybe not quite as miraculous as what he did in this story, but how he answered prayer to draw people to himself and with people who didn't really know much at all. And here I think, you know, you've got to know this about the Bible. You've got to know this about the Bible. If you knew this, you would, you would understand this. But Jesus just sometimes answers prayer. But what I want to remind us of, what he wants, is he wants us to grow. He engages us. Sometimes he answers big prayers for us, and he engages us, and he wants us to trust him, and he wants us to learn to walk with him. He wants us to continue to learn and to grow and to understand more. So you'll have greater responsibility in the future and not just stay at this simple level of faith without really understanding and ever really getting to know him. Uh, Secondly, Jesus was quite willing to be interrupted by people. Jesus was quite willing to be interrupted. He demonstrated this with Jairus, then he demonstrated this with the woman who suffered for 12 years. Some of us are not always patient with interruptions, right? Some of us are not always patient when we are interrupted by people. Some of us are task-oriented people. Some of us are highly relational. I shouldn't say us on this last one. Some of you are highly relational. You could probably divide the world into those two groups. Sometimes people do. Some people are task-oriented. Some are relationally oriented. Both are valid. Both are important. I am a task-oriented person about people. Sue is a highly relational person about tasks. I remember having a long conversation with one of our staff members back in Stoughton, and he was talking about how task-oriented I was and that he was a relational guy. And it was so true. And sometimes my being task-oriented made his life miserable. That wasn't necessarily good. But the Great Commission, is, it's all about people, right? It's highly relational, right? The Great Commission is a great task. Who's going to do the task? And it, it's all of us together. We need each other and we're going to be different. Jesus was willing to be interrupted by people. We should be willing to be interrupted by people. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Apostle Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another. It means the Cut, your, cut other people some slack. Hey, they're gonna drive, some of you, some of the people are gonna drive you crazy. Cut them some slack, that's grace. Be patient. Be patient with your kids. Be patient with your husband or your wife. Be patient with your coworkers. Be patient with your classmates or your roommate. Be patient. Be patient with the guy in front of you in traffic. Be patient. And uh, sometimes God will quite surprise you with your patience on an opportunity he wanted to bring to your attention, but because you weren't patient, you didn't notice it. Ephesians 4.32, the Apostle Paul in the same chapter writes this, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you. Cut each other some slack. Even when people interrupt you. Now, this was an important verse in our family. This verse used to be on our refrigerator at home growing up. And so when our kids would get into a fight, oftentimes we had to talk about it. And then we got reminded of this verse and this, I had to quote it too, I had, to, um, I had to be kind to Sue and be patient and ask for forgiveness or forgive, but we had our kids. Uh, you know, I could ask them to stand up right now and quote it, I'm sure they'd love to. <laughs> but I wouldn't even have done that uh, when they were kids, although it would have been a really good idea when they were kids. The cool thing is, just like in the first century, that still applies today. It still works today. It's still a high priority today. Third lesson, getting to know Jesus leads to hope and trust. Getting to know Jesus. Jairus confirms that. The woman who was uh, healed confirms that. We often talk about how Christianity is a relationship, you know, Some of you just love to talk about that, and that's really important. It is. It's a relationship with God. It's a two-way communication. He communicates with me. I communicate with him. It's not about uh, this rule-oriented life where I have to be, I have all these rules to keep, and it's all about me being super good, trying to be good enough for God. That's not what Christianity is about. It's about a relationship. God's reached down to us. He's done the work of our salvation, and he invites us into a relationship, and we can communicate. We can talk to him. We can pray. We can bring our concerns and requests and our praises. We learn from him. He answers prayer. We learn from scriptures. It's a relationship. And as our relationship grows, hope grows. And uh, our trust, our faith grows. It's like a muscle. It gets exercised and it becomes stronger. But if we don't get to know Jesus... You know, if we're not moving forward in our faith, then we're gonna drift. And we're not gonna have as much hope. We're not gonna our faith is gonna be wimpy sometimes. And getting to know Jesus leads to hope and trust. I'm gonna just uh give you a little in Matthew 16 where this is about Peter. And think in terms of disciples that were called to follow Jesus. Peter was a fisherman, so he wasn't like us super giant on his uh, knowledge of religious matters or the old testament scriptures and he just learned to hang out with jesus learn to follow learn to do what he said after doing things that jesus told him not to do and uh, when jesus came to the region of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is that's a term uh, for jesus they replied some say john the baptist others say elijah from the old testament and others say jeremiah from the old testament or one of the other prophets from the Old Testament. Next slide. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon and Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter was the first to say that. Peter was the first who really got this whole thing about why Jesus, and Peter had been hanging out with Jesus for a long time, and that just as he got to know Jesus and trust Jesus, he got it. And I'll tell you what, it gave him hope. So much so that Peter was willing, according to tradition, to be nailed to the cross upside down. He was willing to die for Jesus. You know, some people say Christianity is a hoax and it was invented in the second century. All these guys were willing to die. This was real. They understood how important this was. Because of the hope the hope that goes beyond the grave number four miracles are still possible and God answers prayer of genuine faith miracles are still possible God answers prayer of genuine faith Jesus is still the same he still has the same power he still has the same compassion for desperate people and he's looking for genuine faith faith that takes him at his word Faith that follows his leadership and his instructions. And that's especially important for those who have been following Christ for some time. I think he's a little more gracious with newbies. But don't think you're a newbie for a very long time. When it comes to raising people from the dead, it's not the norm. It has never been the norm. There are miracles where God has raised people from the dead. It is not the norm. I think you know that. That's been your experience. He could do it. God could do it anytime he wants to. The norm is Hebrews 9:27. It is given unto men to die once. It's given unto the human race to die once and after that to face the judgment. When I face judgment, I intend to stand before Jesus and be ushered into the presence of God. There's another judgment. And I hope you're not planning to be there. It's called the lake of fire in Revelation 20, and that judgment is final, and it is a judgment in hell. That's not my purpose here, but miracles happen in the Bible during special periods of time, and we see this in the Old Testament when God was doing something new, especially in the life of Moses. God was doing something huge in the nation, this new group of people, and he raises up this leader, and Moses is able to do many miracles to display the power of God. And this would be to establish the law, a constitution for this new nation. And um, God wants his people to pay attention to the messenger, Moses, and to pay attention to the message. And so all these miracles happen. And that's sort of like the huge part of what the Old Testament is all about, is, is through the life of this leader, Moses. And then we have... In the life of Jesus, we have some prophecies about him in the Old Testament, and then we hit his birth, and we have angels showing up to announce. And then we have, uh, when he goes public around the age of 30, we, we see Jesus teaching and doing all kinds of miracles. What's going on here? God is authenticating, pay attention to this messenger, pay attention to his message, I am doing something big. And, uh, this, and then he, this gets passed, Uh, to the apostles, the foundation of the church, and they're able to do some of these things. And some people think we should be, all of us, doing this all the time, and I don't think that's necessarily what God intended. I think the foundation got laid through the apostles and this new church was to take off. I do think as we approach Jesus' coming a second time, there's going to be huge stuff happening, and I think there are going to be a lot of miracles accompanying when Jesus comes back. Leading up to it, around it, in the future, I think we're going to see it. But it's just not necessarily the norm to raise somebody from the dead. I wouldn't try to discourage you from praying that way, but don't be disappointed. It's just, It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Um, in Hebrews eleven six, a couple of quick passages here. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, now, some people believe that he exists. The Bible says even the demons believe that and shudder, must believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That, that the woman who came up behind Jesus, she didn't know how to do it, but she touched and she believed Jesus would reward her, and he did. Um, and I just would like to remind us that don't don't uh, this is such a temptation. this is what I see a lot. There are some Christians who sort of view prayer. something you do in emergencies it's like you know having a spare tire in your car when when you have a blowout when you have a flat tire you got that spare and then you go to the tire and you put it on and and we're back to good i've seen it with people that emergency happens they ask for prayer they pray god answers oh that's great isn't god good yeah god's good and then they're just right back to where they were they're just sliding along and no they're not praying like they were and no they're not necessarily in god's word uh God helped them, and they're done. That's not what God intended. He wants us to grow our faith. John 16, 33, may I remind you about this? Jesus said, I've told you these things so that that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. Experience peace. Experience shalom. In this world, you will have trouble. Why are we surprised about that? You're going to have a lot of trouble in this life. Sometimes it doesn't seem big after you get past it, but when you're in it, it it can be overwhelming. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a prophecy. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The world's not all that there is. This life is not all that there is. This pain is not all, this struggle, these hardships are not all that there is. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a great lifestyle verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Yeah, use your understanding. God gave you a mind. You can think things through, but do it under the authority of Jesus Christ and under his direction and seek his wisdom and then use your smarts with it and all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight not perfect not without trouble but he's going to take you through okay one other passage philippians 2 12 and 13 i've used this a lot of times and you're going to wonder how this fits continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling with great humility work out your salvation god has given you salvation it's a gift it's it's within you, it's, it's your new identity, it's who you are, you have the Holy Spirit, and um, he wants you to work this out. He wants you to let it be pushed up onto display, just like he did with that woman. He brought her on display, and she had to express her faith, and then God used it, and she probably became the talk of the town, and everybody wanted to meet her and get to know her, and she had a chance to point people to Jesus. For it is God who works in you to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God wants to work in you to act and to will according to his good purpose. You know what? That may not always be according to what you think your good purpose is or what you want. And here's the sovereignty of God issue. Are you willing to let God be God for his purpose? Not necessarily your purpose. It's great if we can align under the lordship of Christ, but sometimes his purposes may not be exactly what you want. Will it be okay? Because God wants to work in you. Even when it's really difficult or painful. Or even like the woman who lost her husband. Who would wish that on anybody? How painful that must be. And yet God is honored. You know, we say, I I wouldn't do it that way. I don't want to do it that way. I don't either, but is God the priority? Will you allow God to be God? Will you allow his kingdom to come before your kingdom? By the way, we are not entitled to miracles. When they happen, they're wonderful. We are not entitled to answered prayer that always gets what we want. God is entitled to work in his way for his purposes that honor him. And is it okay that Jesus is God and you and I are not? Last one, quickly, number five, don't be surprised that people still laugh at Jesus. You already know that, but sometimes people get discouraged because Jesus is not popular or people aren't excited about your faith. Sometimes people may laugh at you because of your faith. They may criticize you because of Jesus in your life. They laughed at him. You know, the mourners just laughed out loud in front of him. Here's Jesus Christ, King of of kings and Lord of lords, and he gives instructions in the middle of a crisis, and they laugh. Don't be surprised. Jesus is not trying to see how many likes he can get. Uh, Just a reminder as we close 1 Corinthians 2.14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them. Just be careful. Don't expect people who don't know Jesus, people who are non-Christians, people who don't have the Holy Spirit, to think like a Christian or think your Christianity makes sense just because you uh, do. Who understands morality the way you do who understands marriage the way you do, don't expect our world just to get it because it makes sense to you. We cannot expect our world to have the same values. Finally, I would just say, you know, Kimberly Lira was right. We need something more than a new coffee bar. We need something more than... Uh, Maybe a new boss, or a new house, or a new car, or something new, a new phone. Uh, We need more than new church facilities. We need more than a better boss or better co-workers. What we all need, and we can deal with all these other things, is Jesus. That's what we need, and she is right. Let's stand to pray. Father, I um, thank you for the powerful story from Kimberly Lira. May, uh, God, you be her comfort and strength in the days ahead. And enable her and empower her. And may uh, her church not forget her as they walk alongside her. God, may we be reminded that really we are desperate people. And yes, there are desperate people in this room and desperate people around us every day. And if we know that we need Jesus, most of all, we can help other people find Jesus. Because in the end, that's all that's going to really matter. It's my prayer, Father, that we would live to honor you, to appreciate you, to thank you, to look to the future, that we want to continue to grow and look to you and trust you, to develop our faith, our understanding, our knowledge, so that we represent you well, so that people will see who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen.